Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Charlie Dixon. My guest today is Jessica Schleider. Jessica Schleider, PhD, is an assistant professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where she directs the Lab for Scalable Mental Health. Schleider completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Harvard University, her doctoral internship in clinical and community psychology at Yale School of Medicine, and her BA in psychology at Swarthmore College. Her research on brief scalable interventions for youth depression and anxiety has been recognized via numerous awards, including a National Institute of Health Directors Early Independence Award, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, ABCT, President's New Researcher Award, and Forbes 30 Under 30 in Healthcare. We're excited to have Jessica with us today to discuss single-session interventions and her new book, Little Treatment, Big Effects, How to Build Meaningful Moments That Can Transform Your Mental Health. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So taking a look at your research, can you discuss how that research landed on scalable interventions, what those interventions really are, and what really inspired your creation of your book? Of course. So I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, and throughout my training, I was trained in traditional psychotherapy approaches, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, and as I was learning those techniques and growing excited about them in theory, In practice, I kept noticing that the families that I was seeing in community settings across Boston, where I trained, couldn't often come for the entire duration of treatment. And in many, many contexts, including schools, including primary care contexts, folks really weren't able, due to logistical, financial, personal barriers, to come back after the first session. And that got me really frustrated, but also interested in how can we think about interventions that don't assume that folks are going to be able to come back for four months once a week? As it happens, an unrealistic expectation for a lot of people and families. And so I started to look into what has been done, what has been studied, developed around this idea that maybe we can make a dent in people's well-being and their trajectories assuming or not assuming that they're going to come back and assuming that the first session might actually be the last session, whether or not folks want it to be. So this idea of single session interventions, as I learned through some of the research that I did in graduate school, wasn't a new idea at all. It had actually been around since the 1990s. That's when work on this started. That's when research on it started emerging. And I conducted what's called a meta-analysis. That is, I combined all of the studies that had been done on single-session approaches to supporting youth mental health, and I found that they were actually quite effective. And in some cases, the data showed that they could be as as effective as longer-term interventions for the same problems, anxiety, depression, behavior problems. And that was both alarming because why would one session be the same as 16 sessions for folks, but also really encouraging. And it inspired me to really go all in on this question of how can we make the most of the few interactions that many folks will be able to access 
Because in reality, if you look at statistics from the US, Canada, Australia, Spain, Japan, the list goes on, the most common number of sessions that people actually access is one. And so the book emerged from the research that I've been doing on, in the past several years with my lab, the Lab for Scalable Mental Health, now at Northwestern University, to figure out who can single session interventions and scalable approaches be helpful for? How can we get them to the most people possible with as few barriers as possible? And how can we make them a sustainable part of healthcare ecosystems? And that's what we've been working towards figuring out. Thank you for that. Because just like you mentioned, a lot of times clinicians don't necessarily have six sessions or 16 sessions even right. um, with their patients. And, and maybe, and that could be for a lot of reasons, and we'll discuss those in a little bit, but having a one session approach, it can be very powerful, I'm sure. So speaking of single session intervention, can you really define that for us a bit more and discuss how that really differs from what we currently see in a lot of therapeutic intervention systems? Of course. So single session interventions are defined, at least by our group. There are other folks with slightly varying definitions, but we like to think of them as specific structured programs that intentionally, and that intentionality is key, involve or expect just one visit or encounter with a clinic, a provider, or even with a self-guided intervention. And I say intentionality is key because attending an intake session, doing a clinical interview, and not being able to return, although that's technically one session of treatment, it wouldn't be considered a single session intervention because folks weren't going into it with the understanding that we're going to make the most of our time together, no matter whether we can follow up or not. Single session interventions can be self-guided or human facilitated. Our lab does a lot with scalable digital interventions through online platforms, including social media. They can be uh, super brief. Some of them are as brief as five or 10 minutes. They can be a regular session length, an hour, an hour and a half. And they can be offered within or outside of traditional mental health care systems. So they really are quite flexible, but they all boil down to the idea that we can't assume or take for granted that multiple sessions are going to be possible for everybody. And at the same time, we can do something meaningful in one session anyway, even if other kinds of approaches won't be able to be delivered. And they differ in the really critical way that most other therapy modalities assume that change will necessarily need to occur over long periods of time, or at least over multiple weeks or multiple months. And single session interventions embrace the reality for a lot of people that a meaningful moment can shift somebody's trajectory and that that change that can happen in the course of one session can matter. Nice. I really, um, I really felt when you said a meaningful moment, because sometimes it really just takes a one moment to change somebody's whole life. And so that is um, really cool to me to hear. So just like you mentioned, generally speaking, when most people think of therapy, they think of a long drawn out process that can take months, sometimes years, and a patient is sitting and just talking with the clinician again for over a long period of time. You mentioned that single session can be just one session, self-guided, or even built into another type of modality. So can you kind of take us through the process of a single session intervention and what can a patient expect from one? Absolutely. So I can talk you through one particular single session intervention, which is designed to be particularly flexible that our team has developed and is now being delivered in all sorts of places, either as standalone supports for folks who, 
you know, can only access this one opportunity for care, but also for people stuck within systems of care, like people on waiting lists who have sought out care, but who can't access it right away. So we want to take advantage of the fact that they want that support right away. The single session consultation is uh, an intervention that lasts between 30 and 60 minutes. It can be delivered by anybody, either a professional provider or somebody with no mental health training. And we've trained both mm. types of folks to do so. And it's based on a lot of ideas from solution-focused brief therapy. The key of which is that everyone has strengths. Everyone inherently has coping skills that they've developed over the course of their life just by getting through the difficult moments. And the session helps people zone in on a top problem and a top hope and helps them leverage their existing strengths rather than trying to teach them new skills to get through, to take a meaningful step towards that top hope. So by the end of the session, people leave with an action plan, a three-point simple action plan for getting the smallest possible detectable step towards their top hope. They come up with a coping plan. Who can they go to or what resources can they use to help them enact their action plan? And what are they going to do in tough moments when their action plan is hard for them to use? So by the end of the single session consultation, they end up with a written document that defines their coping plan for getting to their best next step and using skills that have worked for them before to make that happen. It really has a different kind of approach than a lot of for instance, cognitive behavioral therapies, which assume that people lack skills to cope. So you're teaching people skills that they maybe are at a deficit at. But the single session consultation solution-focused approaches, they're all about helping people realize their existing strengths and using them to their best ability. So it's coming into the session with a context of competence, an assumption of competence that a lot of other kinds of psychotherapies don't necessarily adhere to. Nice. Nice. Okay. And given that it is a shorter type of session, would you say that a patient that was ready for change is best for this type of approach? Or does it matter how where someone is, I guess, on that, that line of change or that continuum of change? Absolutely. It's a great question. I have a couple different answers to it, actually. I think they can be helpful in different contexts for different people at different levels of right. motivation. And I say that because, yes, in order to willingly engage in a single session of support, somebody has to be in the mindset of wanting to engage in that support because it does rely on their engagement during that time. So for the single session consultation, for example, the first thing we have providers do is a readiness check. They describe that, you know, we're going to spend the next hour making as much progress as we can towards making a dent in a problem that matters to you. And we're going to work together and I'm going to do the best I can to make sure that you end this session in a better place than you started it, or that at least you feel like you know what to do next. Does that sound like something you'd like to do? Or we can talk about some other resources that you can look into. So from the get-go, people are given the option and agency is a key sort of mechanism of change of how these single session interventions work. Is this something that you're opting into or not right now? And That works well, I think, in helping people orient to the fact that this is up to them. This is something that they can, you know, elect to engage in now and or in the future. What we've seen is that even among people who already have high motivation for change, the single session consultation helps boost that motivation even more. So we use the readiness for change ruler on a one to 10 scale. How ready for change are you before and after that session? 
and we see really consistent increases from that intervention. But single session interventions that are self-guided, for example, that have a much lower barrier to entry, those can actually be offered to people who aren't treatment seeking at all. We've embedded digital single session interventions as just-in-time supports that pop up within social media platforms. And when people search for terms like suicide or self-harm, they're actually looking for triggering content on social media. We've worked with nonprofits who contract with social media companies to offer them self-guided five-minute single-session interventions right in that moment. So we can potentially use single sessions to divert people who aren't necessarily looking for support into more supportive avenues and changing that trajectory a bit. So I think depending on the application and the context, single session interventions can actually either be used to support existing motivation or to maybe pivot somebody towards a more motivated space that they weren't initially in. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental Health First Aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. Nice. Okay. Nice. So we kind of mentioned some of the barriers that people have, you know, in accessing care. So some of that might be I don't necessarily have the length of time to devote to years or months or even days on therapy and receiving care. Let's discuss what single session intervention does to break down some of those barriers and offer them to people. Absolutely. There are so many barriers and it would be it would take the full hour and probably more than that to get through all of them. But I'll highlight a few that I think based on the interviews that I conducted for the book with folks who've been through mental health systems of all shapes and sizes, the ones that came up most frequently. One was that our existing mental health care ecosystem is highly reactive rather than proactive. As in, people often get stuck in between supports and are unable to access real care until there's a, an acute crisis. And what that means is that people are, are becoming extremely severe in the difficulties they're experiencing before they enter into the mental health care system at all, which then overburdens the system because it's full of people who are in crisis mm -hmm. and prevents folks who are trying to get care, but maybe who have mild or moderate symptoms from getting in the door at all. This has created such a backlog in folks who are seeking support that wait lists for interventions and treatment of any kind for youth in particular can be over a year long in some regions of the country. So because of this reactive structure that's been set up in terms of how people can get help, one person who I interviewed said, you know, that the only way to get treatment is by, you know, 
experiencing a suicidal crisis. That's the only thing that helps you cut the waiting list. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's sort of the state that we're in right now. Another is the lack of providers. <laughs> um, there just aren't enough trained therapists. And there probably never will be to actually fully meet the mental health needs of everybody in the U.S. and across the world. And that goes for every level of therapist, even including the number of social workers who are out there, marriage and family therapists, school psychologists, not just psychologists and psychiatrists. The shortage is absolutely overwhelming. If we magically double the number of trained professionals overnight, we would still fall absurdly short <laughs> of what we actually need. Yeah. And as a result, this problem of the reactive system interacts with the problem of there aren't enough providers to really just ensure that everyone gets stuck, essentially, when they start to look for care. What single sessions can do is they can start to circumvent some of these challenges. One, they can be offered by non-professionals. They don't have to be offered by trained professionals. They can be self-guided or offered by folks who just receive training in a specific modality. They can increase the likelihood that somebody will get the help they need more quickly because they don't require somebody having an opening in their caseload for months at a time. They just require that you can meet with somebody right now. They're also proactive rather than reactive, as in they're able to be flexibly offered to folks at points of outreach when motivation is high, when receptivity is high, rather than forcing people to go through this ridiculous maze of services only to find that there's nothing available for them. And because single session interventions can be successfully delivered via platforms like social media and other online platforms, there are dissemination avenues that didn't exist, that haven't existed within traditional mental health care systems that are available uh, in this way. And I, I want to highlight quickly that there's a lot of apps out there for mental health and, and wellness, so many en endless apps. And although digital mental health in general has been a wonderful innovation, most of those apps also rely on these long-standing assumptions about how therapy works. Like you got to do it every day. You're, you're going to see change over long periods of time. And most people use an app once and never again, just like in-person therapy, they usually go once and never again. So using the single session mindset in digital interventions, but also in in-person approaches can really just shift people's expectancies for how change can happen and where supports can fit into ecosystems of care. Gotcha. And really when you were discussing the digital effects of therapy or the needs that we see digitally, it really made me think more about teens and, and young adults, adolescents, because they are in my experience, they're focused a lot more on social media apps and they're doing everything online. Even schoolwork these days, a lot of times is online. Even when we're in person, they are still you know, on their devices, on their computers or phones or what have you. And what I see as a clinician with, with teenagers is that we've seen a lot more the precedence of mental health issues along teenagers has grown tremendously, especially since covid can you tell us more about how single session interventions can work for teens? And do you think that this type of intervention really is helpful for them and in what ways? Absolutely. So my lab focuses primarily on adolescents. That's where the bulk of our research has been focused because I'm a child and adolescent psychologist by training. Before that, I taught middle school math. It's an age group I'm very dedicated to. Um, yeah. 
I switched from math because that wasn't as helpful for the problems that they found most important to them. (laughs) But the interventions that we've developed and actually the interventions that are freely available for anybody to access at any time on our lab website are designed specifically for teens because teens face all of the barriers that I just discussed, the reactivity of the healthcare systems, the the limited options and providers for them, but also they have very limited agency often in what kind of support they can even access in the first place. In a good portion of states in the United States, teens aren't even able to self-refer into mental health treatment unless they have a parent or guardian signing a consent form with them. So teens are really constrained in what they can actually use. But offering evidence-based tools through platforms that they are on anyway is a great way to meet them where they're at in the platforms that they're used to and offer them support in a context that they would actually receive and be able to to use. And the uh, single session online supports that we've built, most of them were co-designed with teens. So they're not just built for teens by adults, they're actually built with teen feedback. So the ideas, the language, the images, all of that, how we explain different coping skills and these interventions are designed in many ways for teens. During the pandemic, we actually did a nationwide clinical trial that include 2,452 adolescents across all 50 U.S. states. And we recruited 100% of them over social media, over Instagram for the study, because that's where they were. We found that a single session online program teaching that people are capable of change simply because of how brains work, reduced depression symptoms three months later, reduced anxiety symptoms three months later, even reduced restrictive eating three months later, which we were surprised about, but unfortunately 60% of our sample was engaging in restrictive eating compared to an active control program. So these interventions can have lasting benefits for adolescents. And in fact, I think they take advantage of the the channels where adolescents most want to and most frequently seek help. Nice, nice. So is there something specific that you found that works for teens? Is it teaching neuroplasticity? What, What do you find has been the most helpful in teaching your teens? For sure. So Uh, A lot of what we put into our single session interventions, regardless of the content, regardless of the specific skill or idea we're teaching, boils down to what's called self-determination theory. And self-determination theory has three key components that it says, you know, these three things are basic psychological needs that all humans have. And by helping to meet those needs, you, you activate people's capacity for behavior change in positive directions. Uh, Self-determination theory is especially relevant for teenagers because teenagers are at an age where they're wanting and driven to make their own decisions, Mm -hmm. to express autonomy, to feel self-determined, to feel competent and skillful on their own. So offering teens those opportunities to feel autonomy, which is one of those three needs, competence, another one of those three needs, and relatedness which is what all our interventions are designed to do, is just developmentally tailored to be custom fit for teenagers. And what these interventions do is teens are invited to share their lived experience and expertise in coping with a mental health difficulty with others. They hear narratives and stories from other teens who've gotten through similar difficulties using the skills that we use in the intervention. We teach them about neuroplasticity and give them an explanation 
for why these coping skills can actually work because of how our brains are structured to help them feel some ownership over what we're teaching them, not just random adults telling them how to think and how to cope. But here's a scientific explanation on why this could be true for you. Draw your own conclusions, which again, reinforces that autonomy and leaves them with an action plan that they co-design themselves within the intervention itself in order to help them feel like they have concrete skills and competencies that they can use in their next moment. So by the end of the program, teens feel a better sense of competence, autonomy, and relatedness through those stories and through sharing their own stories. And those components are helpful in allowing them to take that next step for themselves that matters. The specific contents of the interventions are very various. And we teach about a variety of different skills. And in our online platforms, we often allow teens to choose which one they want to try. Do you want to learn about behavioral activation? Do you want to learn why people are built for change? Do you want to learn self-compassion? Because again, that choice reflects an opportunity to give teens agency. Absolutely. So the overall principles of the intervention or all of the interventions are actually more important than the content <laughs> because there are lots of ways to fulfill those basic psychological needs for competence, autonomy, and relatedness. So the SSIs, single session interventions, serve as many opportunities for those needs to be fulfilled. Nice. And so let's say I was a clinician in high school and I wanted to bring more single session interventions to my students, especially those that are suffering with, with the types of mental health issues that you are mentioning here. How would I go about doing that? There are lots of ways to go about doing that. One is by going to our lab website, schleiderlab.org and clicking on the tab called Project Yes. Project Yes stands for Youth Empowerment and Support. That is where we store open access, anonymous, free, interactive versions of, of the programs that we've tested in randomized trials with teenagers. So anybody can use those at any time. They are free. And at the end of those programs, teens also have the option if they want to, to anonymously leave their best advice for others in coping with depression or anxiety. And that actually goes into our Project Yes Advice Center, if they give us permission. And that's a place where they can contribute to a growing living resource of teens helping teens, essentially, through the intervention. So trying to lean into that opportunity to present teens with relatedness, feeling related to others who are experiencing similar things and autonomy and competence too. Another way would be to, in the book, there are several single session intervention-based activities at the end of the book. And those are all based on interventions that are either therapist-delivered or self-guided that anybody can use anytime. For instance, the single session consultation that I mentioned earlier, the full protocol for that is in the back of the book. Our lab website also has training resources for providers who are professionally trained who want more in-depth support around delivering something like the single session consultation. So there are lots of free resources out there and happy to link to those at the end of this too. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And so is there a personal story of someone that you've worked with or someone that another clinician has worked with that have found success with a single session intervention? And so what did that look like for them? What did that feel like? Absolutely. So I can talk about one case, not their real name, but I'll use the name Julia for purposes of this call. And this was a single session intervention that was delivered in the context of a, of a clinic waiting list. So Julia had reached out for outpatient services at an outpatient mental health care uh, clinic, 
And unfortunately, this clinic has been long plagued with a very long waiting list. So Julia was told, probably it's a four to six month wait for a clinician to see you on a consistent basis, which is very typical. But we offer this single session consultation service. Would you like support right now? And since Julia was just in the moment of reaching out, she said yes. She was immediately connected to the on-staff clinician in the clinic and was able to engage in a single session consultation. Now, this is a clinic where I was formerly a faculty member at Stony Brook University, and we had a single session consultation service in our in-house clinic that I supervised. So that's where I came across this case. So Julia was experiencing a lot of different stressors. She was distressed about cultural differences between herself and her family members as a first-generation immigrant with academic difficulties, managing overwhelming emotions. But the thing that really brought her to therapy or to seek out treatment was difficulties with binge eating that really had become uncontrollable for her, as well as purging in response to that binge eating as a way of coping with these overwhelming feelings. So the top problem that the clinician identified with Julia within the first five minutes of her single session consultation section was feeling this urge to purge and feeling not able to control it when it happened. So the first step of a single session consultation is identifying that top problem and a top problem that can be potentially modifiable. So that urge was a good one because, you know, that's something that could plausibly somebody could feel more competent to change that by the end of a single session. But a broader top problem, like I want to stop the binge purge cycle that I'm in forever, that's a little bit too broad for a single session. So it was good that the clinician sort of zoned in on that. The clinician then helped Julia flip that top problem into a top hope of by the end of this session, what do you want to be able to do a little bit better? Or how do you want to feel a little bit different? Uh, And Julia said she wanted to make a plan to eat breakfast and to have a collected start to her day because that over and over again seemed to sort of determine how the rest of her day would go, that sort of first experience in the morning. So from there, the clinician asked what's called the miracle question, which is really common in solution-focused brief therapy. But the miracle question goes something like this. Imagine a miracle happens while you're sleeping. And overnight, that top problem you just talked about, the urge to purge, totally disappears. And it's like magic. So you wake up the next day, and because this miracle happened while you were sleeping, you actually don't know that it occurred. So walk me through your morning and tell me what would you do differently? What would you feel differently or think differently that would tip you off that this miracle had happened and the urge to purge that you've been struggling with is completely disappeared? So Julia went on to describe her miracle day, and we then have them in a single session consultation rate how close they are to their miracle day. 10 out of 10 being like, your miracle day is here, zero being like you're the furthest possible from it. Julia rated a three. So she was pretty far, but not the worst. Then the clinician helped Julia pivot from there to identifying experiences in her life, moments in her life when she was at less than a three. What was different about those moments? What about moments when you were higher at a three, higher than a three? What was different about those moments? And helped Julia think about and reflect on the circumstances and actions that she had taken in those different situations to be at a higher or lower level than a three. And from there, she could use those ideas to make a three-point action plan based on what she said in the past that's worked for her or exceptions to the problem to take one step closer to her top hope 
which was feeling collected in the morning and having a good start to the day, um, with the goal of getting one point higher on her Miracle Day scare, scale. So she was at a three when she walked into the session. At the end of the session, the goal was then to get her to a four. Not to a 10, that would be unreasonable and unrealistic, but let's make a plan to get to a four because that feels doable, that feels feasible. The rest of the session is spent planning out that action plan to get to a four. They end the session with a couple of resources that Julia has identified to cope, and also a note from her clinician, which we include in all the single session consultation sessions, identifying two elements of the session or two points in their conversation that help them believe that Julia could do it, that they could carry out their action plan and be successful. Julia then left the session with her double-sided one sheet of paper, action plan, coping plan, and note from her therapist, and she went along her way. So as with all clients who received the single session consultation, we followed up with Julia two weeks later just to check in, see how she was doing, and to ask her, would you like to stay on our waiting list and get matched with a therapist in four to six months? And Julia was one of the 10% of folks who get an SSC single session consultation who chose not to stay on the waiting list because she reported that her action plan actually worked for her. And she felt like she could cope in those moments much better than she had before. Uh, and she chose to remove herself from the waiting list, which of course makes the waiting list go faster for everybody else who's on it. So it's of course not always the case that somebody receives a single session intervention and no longer wants to pursue additional therapy. For some people, it can work the opposite way where the single session consultation works super well for them. And then they are more excited <laughs> to engage with future treatment because they can see that it can work. So there are multiple paths uh, after receiving a single session that somebody can take, but all of them, I think, are potentially really beneficial in helping people get in a, a, a direction that feels better for them. Nice. And so just as you mentioned in the session, thinking about the future, so as you envision the future of, of patient care and, and therapy going forward, what sort of changes would you like to see changing our, our current intervention systems? Well, I think there are two categories of change. Uh, the changes that I think need to happen within the mental health care system, the formal system, and changes that need to happen outside the formal health care system. Because the reality is that uh, about 50% of adults and up to 80% of young people with significant mental health needs are not going to access treatment. So we need to address that gap from both ends. How could we expand the capacity of the system we have and how can we offer something to the many people who'd otherwise get nothing? Uh, and I think single session interventions can help fill both of those gaps. Within the healthcare system, first of all, I think therapists should know what single session interventions are. <laughs> I think our training programs could do a much better job in including information about these supports in the curriculum to give folks another tool in their toolkit so that they can manage their waiting lists a little bit more effectively so that they can be more flexible with families that may be at high risk for not being able to return after session one. And just increasing the number of folks who were able to be flexible and able to apply this single session mindset to every individual session they have with clients. For five years in my former faculty position before I got to Northwestern, I supervised child and adolescent therapy cases for PhD students who were trained to be therapists. And I encouraged all of them to use a single session mindset in every single session they had with families, even if it was long-term therapy. 
because there's always something that you can support somebody in doing a little bit better at the end of the session than when they came in. So if you think more in terms of how can every encounter matter, I think even that training orientation can go a long way. I also think we need different models of reimbursement. So I think part of this is systemic, right? So right now there's often no code for paying for or billing for single session interventions, because if you only have one encounter, you don't have a diagnosis yet, right? So there is no diagnostic code to use to bill for a therapy session. So right now my lab is working with a couple of state mental health agencies to pilot a new code that would allow therapists to offer a single session intervention or consultation without a diagnostic assignment. So to offer support to folks who are on waiting lists, for example, who haven't had the formal intake assessment yet. Uh, we'll see how that goes. We have a trial period where we can hopefully demonstrate utility and then maybe it'll become permanent, but TBD. Outside of healthcare systems, I think multi-sector partnerships are going to be essential with schools, with social media platforms, with pediatric primary care agencies, in these creative spaces where especially young people are and seek help already, but where no supports are necessarily embedded or automatically available that actually fit how folks would be interfacing with care in those contexts. So instead of trying to import 16-week cognitive behavioral interventions into schools, which is a nice idea, but no, no way that's going to happen. <laughs> How can we import interventions that are designed to meet the realities that are in schools, that are designed to meet the reality that sometimes kids will just show up <laughs> and be, be seeking help and need uh, support one day? What can you do for kids in that moment to help them? Or online in the era of social media, everything is instantaneous and fast, and people aren't going to come back for multiple sessions of something that they're offered on the internet. So how can we make the most of people's very limited attention spans <laughs> within these platforms to ensure that even if they engage in something for five minutes, there's a chance it could actually help them in a meaningful way, or there's a chance that it could divert their attention to something more helpful than they would have seen otherwise. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for reform and partnership to make single sessions more widely available to folks. And hopefully a lot of them will, will start to move forward in the coming years. Nice. Thank you for that. I can agree with you on most of those topics. Absolutely. So Jessica, can you leave us with a final message to our listeners about the power of single session intervention and the hopes that lie on the other side? Absolutely. Even if it feels like change is impossible or slow or that it's going to be a massive mountain to climb, every mountain-sized change is a series of incremental tiny changes. And a single session intervention at any point in time can help you achieve one of those incremental changes that is necessary to any bigger change that you're going to make. So it can feel like it's too small to matter. And at the same time, one moment has mattered for a lot of people. So thinking more flexibly about how we can create more of those moments for as many people as possible is really the, the goal here. And hopefully different types of providers are, you know, increasingly open to thinking more about how these things can fit into the services they're already providing and make life easier for their clients and for them because, you know, happy, motivated patients certainly make therapists much happier too. So it's a two-way street. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And Jessica, your book, Little Treatments, Big Effects, How to Build Meaningful Moments That Can Transform Your Mental Health, recently um, was released in the last week or so. So congratulations on that. Thank and you. where can our listeners learn more about you, your research, your book? And if you wouldn't mind giving us that website again for your Scalable Mental Health Lab, because I know for one, I will be definitely checking out Project Yes. Absolutely. The lab website for our research group is www.schleiderlab.org. Schleider, my last name, lab.org. All of our resources are collated on that website and we update it pretty frequently. Our interventions are all available there uh, in multiple languages, Spanish, English, Arabic, Hebrew, patient Creole, a whole bunch of different collaborators all over the world have been helping us with this. And otherwise, I'm available if, if you want to reach out because you have specific questions about training or implementation. Our lab is always open to partnerships, so anyone can find my email address on that site too. Awesome. 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 Jessica, it was so great to have you on the show. We really appreciate speaking with you today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining Jessica and I today. The resources for this episode and an archive of all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com bht. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.